This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. And today I am joined by Joy Gonzalez, who is the co-founder of the Project Solution, an NGO that helps people in distressed areas. We will talk about the NGO sector and the Project Solution itself. Thank you for joining me, Joy. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> to start with, could you please briefly introduce yourself and uh, the Project Solution? I'm Joe Gonzalez, and we started the Project Solution as an opportunity to help support communities in need in countries all over the world by funding small-scale infrastructure projects that are relatively low cost to find donors to fund, but make a really big impact for that community. This is our, I think, 14th year. We've been around for since 2009. What was your motive? Why did you decide to start that? And what is your background apart from the NGO? It's a longer story, but I'll make it condensed. But essentially, my friend Tara Bracco and I, we're always brainstorming of all kinds of ideas, not necessarily NGOs, but just ideas to make things better in the world, hopefully. And this is my friend that we have dinner and I'm sure you have a friend that you have dinner with and you solve the world's problems over dinner, uh, but nobody's listening. So <laughs> this is that friend of mine. And this is an idea that we came up with that we thought this could actually really be something. And we decided to pursue it uh, from there and formed the nonprofit. And that's, that's what kicked it off. And my background is not in, originally it was not in anything NGO related per se. My background has been mostly project management in a lot of industries, but I started in the entertainment industry and in television and film and theater and I've since moved into project management for all kinds of different businesses and walks along. Was it some moral motive that, that you wanted something that uh, was not present in your life and you wanted to try something else and help people at the same time? Yeah, it's a good question. My whole life, I've actually been a very active volunteer. So I've done a lot of volunteer work for lots of different organizations. I've worked with young people quite extensively and I've taught classes and stuff in various capacities. So I've always, I always like volunteering. I always feel that it's really something that feeds your soul for yourself. And I'm glad to be able to do that. So this was, I think, just another natural extension of that and an opportunity to do something much larger than myself and something that I know would make a really grander impact on others that, that needed help. How did you start and how did your projects develop over time? Of course, as a young and Joe, you would work with some small scale projects. How did it change or didn't? We essentially started the real crux of what made this start in the first place was a small, another nonprofit, another NGO in Cameroon. And in that country, there was a gentleman named Joshua Chiamba who had his own nonprofit that he had run there for many years. And he had posted something online looking for a volunteer to help him with printing color brochures, which I thought was, I just came across it by chance. I came across this post and essentially he had a, like an ecotourism program that he was trying to get out there and he posted someone to help him do the printing. So I saw this post and I said I could help him out and I printed these brochures for him 
in the U.S. and I shipped them to Cameroon and he was quite grateful. And he, on his website, it had, he had some information about this water project. He had needed help to find the funds to extend an existing water tap from his village to a nearby village that would serve 500 people. And the whole cost for that project was 900 US dollars. So I thought, wow, $900 that would help 500 people. You know, why don't I ask my friends and family for $50 each and I could just fund it. And that sort of sparked that initial idea of why don't I ask my friends and family for $50 every year? What could I do with that money? And that was really the spark that created the project solution. That idea of crowdfunding, if you will, very low cost projects or low cost, small donations that would really help a community. And so that project in Cameroon was our very first project. And it was just extending a water tap to a nearby village. And it completely changed the lives of the people that lived there. So we started with that and we wanted to continue to do small infrastructure projects that were tangible or something that you, that donors could really see. So a construction of something or building a facility or a classroom or things that were going to really impact that community, but that you could point to and say, I was part of that. And that was the kind of essence of what we started. Where are these infrastructure projects located? Is it in Africa or in some other areas as well? We're in countries all over the world. We have done projects in India and Nepal, in several countries in Africa. We've been in Nicaragua and Central America, El Salvador. We've been in Indonesia. So we do projects geographically. It doesn't really matter to us per se, it's, but it's generally in developing countries or um, countries where the U.S. dollar will go a lot further than, than locally, at least. <laughs> How do you find these projects? Is there a pitch or do you receive submissions? Over the years, we essentially used to have, we've changed our model a little bit, but essentially we would have an open opportunity for a grant application. So other nonprofits, and it should be said that we do the projects because it's other nonprofits that we collaborate with to make these projects happen. So local nonprofits that are on the ground that have a history of doing these types of projects, they apply for a grant from us by filling out an application and we review it and determine if it's a good fit. And then we fund the project. Although more recently we've shifted that a little bit in that we are essentially right now working primarily with nonprofits that we have worked with in the past. So we have a history of working with a lot of organizations around the world. And for those that we have done several projects with, we're right now focusing on a collaborative effort with them. You mentioned that you receive applications. I suppose now you don't need much marketing, but initially you first had to spread the message so that others know that you exist. How did you do that? In the beginning, it definitely was a little bit of a challenge to get out there and get our footing and find groups that we saw we could really work with. Sometimes we've had, we had some early opportunities through word of mouth. So other people might know someone else and they suggest, oh, my friend runs his own nonprofit. That would be a perfect fit or you should contact that person. And we've met some amazing people that way. And then in other cases, I've just done a lot of proactive research and I've gone to, there's a few really good 
uh, websites that are designed for charities around the world to post their projects to help raise funds for it. And so I've done a lot of research and digging on those sites to find organizations that I thought we might be a fit for, and I've reached out to them. So a lot of that like work to be proactive and find synergies with other groups that, that we think would be a good fit. And then after time, we, it, it maybe doesn't take long, but after some years, people would find us. It would just happen organically that a lot of people started just applying for grants. And if I decide to, to found an NGO and I've no experience, what would you recommend to someone like me? Where should I start? I think if you were going to find yourself with the idea of creating an NGO, first, I would certainly, depending on where you live in the world, of course, you want to make sure that you have a good understanding of what it means in your country to apply and go through the legal process to become a nonprofit. In the United States, it's a 501c3, is what is considered a tax code that makes us a charitable organization. And I do your research. I think it, a lot of it depends on who you are and what your experience is and if you have done anything like this in the past. But I always encourage surrounding yourself with other individuals that have to be equally as passionate about the project and have a skill set that you don't have. I'm a big proponent of matching or team building with other individuals. With me, if you and I both have the exact same types of professional skills, then that might not necessarily help the grand, the big picture, right? But if you have a skill in something that I don't have, then we complement each other and we can move forward on things that we need every, all these different parts to make something work. So a lot of it comes down to, I think, making sure you, you do your homework, have all your ducks in a row, don't jump into it unless you really feel confident about and have a realistic understanding of what it is you're taking on. When we went into this, my friend Tara, before we decided to even do this, her big red flags or her big thing from the beginning was, unless we can find ourselves a lawyer to help us with the process of all the paperwork and an accountant who will help us in the long term for all of our accounting that you have to report to the government, then it's probably not worth doing. And purely by chance or whatever you want to say, the luck of the universe or whatever it is, Within, I would say, six months, both of those things just fell in our plate. So that, that was the thing that said, yeah, I guess we're going to do this. On the financial side, what is your model? How is your NGO financed? Uh, we, came up with, we came up with, I think, a fairly unique model. But we did this knowing that it would be a challenge in other aspects. So essentially, our donation model is one that Tara coined, which is called a subscription for change. And so the idea is that our donors can donate to us on a subscription kind of basis once per year, but then we in turn would use 100% of that money and pool the funds with donors and we would fund the project. So the idea was we felt if you could only afford $25 or $50, you we feel you deserve to know where that money is going. And so we 
built this model in that we could really take all of your money, put it to a project and make that happen and update you to, so that you can see where that money's going. Now, with that in mind, that of course means, well, how do you pay for anything else? So we knew that would be a challenge going in, but that was our commitment. I don't get paid at all. I don't get a penny for doing this work. And, but that was by choice, right? We felt like this was the right thing to do as, as humans. And the four of us that are the board that run the organization all do it as a, a passion project. We do get some other financial input from either individuals from our advisory board or other donors that have uh, indicated that they would earmark money specifically to operations. Although we keep our operations costs very low, that we just cover the basics like the website and some accounting software and things like that on the back end. So we want a very slim <laughs> budget, but again, that was a conscious decision. These small-scale projects, what is the financial estimate for them? Our projects typically average about 1500 to 3500 US dollars on average. And our donors, we average are usually around $50 is a typical average donor as to how much they give annually. So it doesn't take long to fund one of these projects. And again, that was a decision. We want to keep our, the costs of these projects relatively low so that we could fund them relatively quickly and make a big difference because these are, these are relatively low cost. If you think about those numbers as someone who lives in the West, but they make a huge difference to the community there. Could you give some examples of the projects you already done? Absolutely. We have done, as we've said, it's infrastructure based, but it's usually things that are real necessities. So water, drilling a well, repairing existing water taps that might be there. We've worked with schools where they might be building a new classroom or they've had old classrooms that need to be refurbished and brought back to life so that they can be used with new desks and things like that. We do a lot, we do a lot of sanitation projects and although it's not very glamorous, to toilets are a really critical need in a lot of countries. There's quite a lot of schools in many countries that don't have any toilet facilities at all or, or a very small facility for the entire school. And that other than being not very sanitary to have that, it's obviously there's a lot of health related issues that comes with that over time. And that's a major issue. So we do a lot of those types of projects. So yeah, it's a pretty, pretty broad range of different types of projects of that type that, that will support those communities. And there, and the nice thing about a lot of these projects is for pretty much every type of project we do, these are generational. We think about it in the immediate that we have funded that project and it's finished and there it is. Of course, that means that will keep working and running year after year. And we make a point of asking those kind of questions from the beginning, which is what is the long-term plan for that project? If we're building a toilet facility, a school, who's maintaining it, right? These are important questions to have a sense of how that's going to keep going. My next question is meant to give our listeners an idea of what it takes to run an NGO. How many projects do you do per year? How much time do you personally spend on that work? I think an unfortunate side effect of nonprofits is that there often aren't, at least in my opinion, a lot of great models for nonprofits. And they tend to 
fall back on using a for-profit business model for developing sort of stuff. So for us, we're not necessarily interested in doing more projects every year. We're interested in doing what is sustainable for us for that year. So we might do two projects, three projects in one year. Maybe the next year we're doing five projects. Maybe the year after that we're doing two projects again. That fluctuates quite a bit and that's only based on the donations that we have for that year that is sustainable for that particular year's project. So how much time? I think that varies a bit too, but over over the years I've tried, like anything else, if you become immersed in the work, you find a good working rhythm as to to make things more efficient for yourself, hopefully. <laughs> and partly that's a little bit of a hard question to to answer because we essentially when we fund a project, we Building the donation team isn't difficult. We have a lot of donors. In fact, we have a lot of donors that their money is just sitting in the bank until we have a new project to, to go. And that's easy to get that funded. But then it's a lot of communication, right? Like I have to reach out to the nonprofit who applied for it. We as a board have to decide to fund that project. I have to vet out the organization if we've never worked with them before. So I do Skype calls or whatever calls with them across the world, feel them out and get, get references and blah, blah, blah. There's all those kind of steps behind the scenes to make sure that we feel confident about the project. And then it's a lot of just communication online. So I'm not spending a huge amount of time. And that's another reason we've designed a lot of our systems because I do this really completely volunteer. We designed a lot of our operational systems and workflows and models to make it as effective as possible, knowing that I have to do this in my free time, whatever time that is. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Since you mentioned that there are other types of NGOs that are actually for-profit organizations, could you give a brief overview of what exists in this landscape and what are the types of NGOs? How are they financed in terms of their focus? How do they differ? Like I mentioned, it's a challenging thing that Sometimes there are organizations that feel the need that they do have to grow exponentially, which isn't really sustainable in my mind. If you're trying to grow year after year and your budget needs to get bigger year after year and the types of things have to be bigger, I think we've, I think in the landscape of things in the world, economically, we've been brought up to believe that's the only way to do it, that growth is the only option. And we just don't subscribe to that. We just don't think that's really a healthy way to do it. And I think even less healthy for nonprofits and charities, because the bigger you get as a, it just means there's more you have to deal with. You have to try and bring in bigger amounts of funding. And that is unfortunately why in the nonprofit landscape, it's totally legal and okay for me to take 70 or 80 or even sometimes 90% of your donation and put that to operations, only use 20 or less percent toward the cause. And from the get-go, we just didn't, we just don't believe that's the way to do it. Knowing that the sacrifice in this case is that we're doing this as a volunteer. Now, there could be other sort of op opportunities to, it's usually, it's interestingly enough, it's a flip 
side, the way that we believe it should be is that large scale, if we could find some good partnerships with corporations or large scale corporate entities, we feel those are the kinds of entities that should help pay our, our operations because they can afford to make a donation of ten or $20,000 as a tax write-off. And that could actually help us and earmark that to operations and let the person who can give $25 or $50, they're the ones that should fund the project because that they can afford just the small donation and the corporate level can fund much bigger donations. And so we love to be able to try and flip that model so that big corporate entities are funding us to make us be who we are, to make us operate. So that would be, that's to me is a more, but it's a much, much more challenging (laughs) way to go because they also want to do the field part of the project too. But in a lot of ways, it would make more sense from a, from that standpoint, that's the type of model that would be, I think, more effective, but it's a challenging thing to, to pull off. Absolutely. You said that most of your donors are small donors, but how did you collect this pool? Is it the core of the same people or do they change? Actually, the way I started it was I did a Zoom call with a group of immediate friends and families and my Aunt Tara and all of us, we just, I just pitched this idea for the model before we started. And right away, my aunts and uncles and <laughs> friends and cousins, whatever said, yeah, we'll give you $25 or $50 or whatever. And that's how we funded that first project. So initially it was a network of friends and family and we would hold. And then from then we started doing an annual type of event, not really a fundraiser, but really a get together or what we call a community event once per year in New York City. Uh, and we would get together and get the word out and more people would learn about it. And so we started building that way. And honestly, I, I've been very fortunate. I feel very lucky that when I've talked to people, even sometimes seeming strangers or people that I have just met and just talk about the idea of the project, the simplicity of it really resonates with people. And I think people, it becomes a no brainer. They're like, oh, I just give you 25 or $50 and, and you just tell me every year when I'm helping, <laughs> it becomes a very simple thing. So that's how we pretty much started it. For you personally, what does it bring you in terms of your emotions, moral satisfaction? <laughs> I've had the opportunity to travel to some of these places. I don't have to go to every place, but I do like to go. And being on the ground and working with the community and seeing how our what we've done to help support them, it, it's very, it's humbling. It really is pretty amazing. And it does feed my soul, as I said earlier, to know that these relatively small efforts really make a really big impact in that community. That's pretty crucial for me. What are the projects you appreciate most and you are proud of most? I think the things that are the most impactful for me It really is, like I just said, the times of being there on the ground, to meet the community, to hear the stories. I went to Cameroon once and I was able to, after years of, I think it was several years after the week, that was our very first project, but I finally got to go there in person and meet this guy, Joshua, and to meet the community and to see several projects at that point that we've done with those communities and hearing stories from the local people and going to schools and 
meeting a lot of kids at the schools and seeing we help them with this relatively simple lift is it's really satisfying to know that a very small group of people can help other people in the world with this sort of effortless gesture, right? To be able to just give 25 or $50, which isn't really that big a deal once per year for us, but the impact it makes on the lives of others is tremendous. And I think that's the most moving thing for me is just knowing that us as, I think we have to stop thinking of ourselves as living in New York or living in Cameroon or living wherever. I think we have to think more about living on earth together. And these types of things are essential, I think, for us to all live together in our in this global. My last question that I ask all my guests is related to the title of this podcast, Being Modern, Being Human. What does it mean to you, being modern and being human? Maybe I said it just a moment ago too, but I'll tell you one thing. I'll say that one thing that I have learned, I've traveled a fair amount in, around the world. And one of the things I have learned in that opportunity to travel is that you can sit down and have a cup of tea or coffee with anyone on earth and you will find much more similarity than difference, in my opinion. I'm someone that is a big advocate of talking with strangers. I think that it is a wonderful experience to, through happenstance or whatever, to find yourself in a conversation with somebody who was sitting next to you at a cafe or whatever. I think those, taking those opportunities to talk to your fellow human being <laughs> are really critical because at the end of the day, that sharing a meal with a friend or sharing that moment with a stranger, to me, that's really, that's, that is what life is. Like there's nothing more important and satisfying than that type of interaction. And what we're doing right now, these types of interactions and communications are what make life. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Let's talk to each other. Let's be open-minded and be human. <laughs> thank you very much, Joy. Yep. Thanks yep. so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you for listening. A new episode of Being Modern, Being Human will come out in two weeks, as usual. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or review on one of your favorite platforms. That will help others discover the podcast and enjoy it as much as you do. In the meantime, take care and have a good time.